Okay, how about we go ahead and jump right into a couple of minutes early since we do have a lot of stuff to, to cover. Hope you're okay with that. I am happy to see all of you. Hope you had a good day and the weather just great right now. Everybody's envying us right now around the country. I'm telling you, they envying us. They make fun of us in July and August, but they envying us right now. Yeah, man, I'm tell and the sunset, did y'all see that sunset coming in? That's, that's the beauty of God's creation. And uh, that's what should impress us. When, as you read the Psalms this year, notice how much the Psalms talk about the creation and how God is speaking to us about his power and glory through the creation. This is a great part of the country to live in, to see that, to see what the psalmist is talking about. So I just, I was just blown away driving in. I just enjoyed it. I love living here. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Can't believe it's 80 degrees in February and I got to turn my AC on. <laughs> I got ceiling fans on and my AC on in February. That's, I got to get used to that still. Uh, take out your Bible and go over to Revelation chapter one, please. Tonight, Revelation one. This past Sunday, we began our journey through the book of Revelation. We're going to be on this journey for the, the majority of this year. We're going to be on this journey going all the way through through the month of August. This evening, we're going to continue looking uh, at the intro of this book. We're going to be looking at chapter one, trying to get through chapter one. Brother Mitch, who I'm glad to see him this evening and see Sister Veronica. I know they were quarantining for a bit, uh, but I'm glad to see them tonight. Mitch is going to spend after tonight. He's going to take the class over starting Sunday and he's going to have the class. I believe Mitch going all the way through March. Uh, Mitch is going to study with you Revelation two through three. He's going to be looking at the seven churches of Asia. He's done a lot of study on that. He's got some good material on that. And I look forward to sitting in the audience and listening to him teach that. But he's going to pick up Sunday. He's going to carry it all the way uh, through through March. And then I'll come back and pick up with Revelation Revelation four uh, tonight. Again, we're going to finish up chapter one. But before we do that, let's bow our heads and, and let's have a prayer. Almighty God, we are very thankful, Father, for tonight and the opportunity to be together to study and grow and learn together. We pray, Father, that as we study together and, and learn uh, from the book of Revelation, that we will have humble hearts, humble spirits, that we will be united and in harmony with each other, that we will uh, dig deep, Father, and, and seek to, to learn your will from this very important book, your, your last book in your Bible. We pray, Father, for those who may be dealing with various illnesses right now, those who are grieving the loss of, of loved ones, Father. We pray for Sister Edna. She's away right now. We pray that you will bless her and bless Brother Gary during this time of grief in their lives. And all of those, Father, who may be dealing with different burdens right now, I pray that you will be with them. Keep us in your love and care tonight, Father. Let this study be to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just to kind of make sure we're back on the same page here, uh, here is the, what I believe is a good summary of the book of Revelation, what it's really all about. Uh, chapter, chapter one is uh, the intro to the book, the guidepost that we've been looking at to properly navigate our way through the book. Chapters two through three, which Mitch is going to teach, is the seven churches of Asia, where Jesus personally addresses the seven churches of Asia. Chapter four, we have the vision of God on his throne in heaven. 
If you want a good parallel to that from the Old Testament, read Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 is a very good text that is parallel to this. Isaiah experienced something very similar. Uh, chapter 5 is the book with the seven seals, which may be the most important chapter in the book of Revelation. The story of Revelation is, is, is found in, in, in summary, in a nutshell, in chapter, in chapter 5. Uh, chapter 6, the first six seals are open. Chapter 7 is an interlude. Chapters 12 through 13, the enemies the, of the book are introduced. A revelation is like reading a story. You got characters that's found throughout it. You got good guys. You got bad guys. You got heroes. You have enemies. The hero of the book is Jesus. Jesus and his, his army is his church and the angels of God. But then you got bad guys in the book. You got the red dragon. You got the sea beast. You got the earth beast. You got the harlot. All three of those characters, the sea beast, the earth beast, the, uh, the um, harlot, represent, at least in my understanding, in my view, different aspects of the Roman Empire. But we'll talk about that as we move on. Chapters 14 through 20, the judgment is brought on the enemies. They go down one by one. Uh, and then chapters 21 through 22, the final outcome for God's people. Now, what we started on Sunday were the guideposts, the guideposts, the road signs God gives in chapter one so that we can be able to properly, properly understand the book of Revelation. We looked at the first guidepost, which is the name, the, ma the name Revelation. It comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, to uncover, to reveal, to disclose this book is a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus. He's the main character of the book. The content of the book is prophecy. This is a prophetic book. It is like many of the books that are found in the Old Testament. The prophesy is the idea of declaring the mind of, or counsel of God. Prophecy is not just limited to predictions for the future, but it can also be a revelation of God from the past or even it has to do with the present. The style of the book, it is signified. This is a signified book. This book does not read like the book of Acts. It does not read like 1 Corinthians or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This book is written in signs and symbols. It is an apocalyptic book. It is written in a very common genre that was, that was used in the first century. Now, we wanna to move to the fourth guidepost. The guidepost, the fourth guidepost, which is the audience. Who is this book written to primarily? Who was this book written to first? Before we can make proper application to us from the book, we got to first point out who it was first addressed to. Who was the primary application to be made? Uh, what audience was, was to make primary application of this book? It's not us. It's not the Monovista Church of Christ. Not saying that God doesn't view us as important, not saying that we can't make some application, but this book was originally written to seven churches, seven churches that are not in existence anymore, seven local churches that were found in Asia. Now go to Revelation 1 and verse 4. Revelation 1 and verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Drop down to verse 11. In verse 10, John says he was in the spirit. So this is miraculous visions he's able to see. 
He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week. He heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, verse 11, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The book of Revelation was originally written to the seven churches of Asia. When we say Asia, we're talking about seven churches of Asia Minor. That would be modern Turkey. We're not talking about China and Japan. We're talking about Asia Minor. Revelation is primarily directed at these seven churches because they were, they were faced with some very specific situations and problems. They were in the hot zone, the hot zone of Roman persecution. A failure to understand this has led to misunderstandings and error being taught from the book. So often people go to this book and you see with every generation, they want to apply the prophecies and the things said in it to their generation. This book has been applied to everything under the sun. It's been applied to Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. Now we got people want to apply it to COVID and, and this president or that president. It's just totally abused and often it is abused because people forget that this book was originally written not to us but to the seven churches of Asia. They were dealing with a very specific problem and their problem was they were in the hot zone of a persecution that we can't even begin to fathom living in our society today. I mean we, we freak out when you know, when, when we're unable to go to services for a few months because the government may shut down, they, they would have laughed to know that that's our biggest problem. They, they were dealing with some very, very serious issues. Now, these churches were located about right here, right here. This would have been, this is modern Turkey, but this is, this is where the, this, these are where the seven churches of Asia were located in the time of the first century. Now, Jesus is going to say some things to these churches on an individual level uh, in chapters two through three. Brother Mitch is going to deal with that. And we're going to see that at least five of these churches were pretty messed up. They had a lot of things they were doing wrong, but the Lord still recognized him, recognized them as his people and said that there was going to come a time when he no longer recognized them as his people. They didn't clean some things up. But they had some, most of these churches were not very pleasing to the Lord. Now the background, what is the background of the book? That's important. The background of this book is tribulation. Revelation 1 and verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which, is, which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Few observations we need to make there. First, we need to consider how John makes it very clear, or this book makes it very clear who the, the writer is. It is John. What John are we talking about? The Apostle John, very likely the Apostle John. I think we're talking about, now there is even some debate on that, but I think it's the Apostle John. Where is he located at this time? He's on Patmos, Patmos. Sister Margie actually told me she's been to Patmos before. Patmos is located right here. It's west of, 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 Asia, of Asia Minor or where Turkey is, is today. It's a little, very small island. Why was he on Patmos? Why is he there according to what he says in the text? 
Because of the word. What does that mean, Gary? What does it mean because of the word? Yes, he's getting in trouble because he's teaching the gospel. He's being persecuted. He's been exiled because of the word of God, because he's standing for the truth. So we know it's John who's writing the book. We know where he's at. We know his condition. He's being persecuted. Terrible things were happening in the lives of Christians during this time. They were being persecuted by the Roman Empire for their faith in Jesus. Not even the apostle John could escape it. He had been exiled. And I think it's interesting to note that he says that he was their brother and he was also a fellow partaker in what? Tribulation and kingdom. So he's being persecuted, tribulation. I'm being tribulated or I'm going through tribulation just like you are, he's telling these Christians. But we also see how the kingdom is in existence at this time, right? Because John says he's part of it. He says he was part of the kingdom. Now that is a direct contradiction to what premillennialists may suggest today when they say the kingdom is yet to be established. John says he was part of the kingdom of God. He was a spiritual kingdom. It was in existence in the time of the first century. The Roman Empire at this time was likely a man named Domitian. Remember that name, Domitian. History tells us that he reigned from 81 to 96 AD. Domitian is said to have been a wicked ruler who was only concerned with his own pleasure. He demanded that others address him as master and God. He also required that Roman citizens burn incense to him and confess Caesar as Lord. Confess him as the Lord. Confess him as a God. Let me ask you something. Would that be a problem for Christians to do that? Why would that be a problem? Because most folks in the Roman Empire had no trouble with doing that. Why is that a problem for Christians? What'd you say? Yes, we worship God and God alone. We don't worship a man. We don't even worship angels. John in this book tries to worship angels. What do the angels tell him? Don't worship us, you worship God. So we don't worship angels. We don't worship men. We worship God and God alone. Jesus said that to, the, to Satan in Matthew 4. You worship God and God alone. So this is a problem for Christians, isn't it? This is one of those instances where you, you don't submit to the government on this, right? We, we, as Christians, we submit to the laws of our government as long as what? Those laws don't try to provoke us or cause us to compromise the truth, our faith. And this is direct contradiction to the truth. You can't do what the government is saying here and be pleasing to God at the same time. So this is a problem. Obviously, this would be a problem for Christians since they would not bow down to the emperor as God. They would either have their property seized, be arrested, and even tortured and killed. So this is a big problem for Christians. Revelation was written to give these Christians hope and encouragement. It was designed to motivate them to hang on to their faith and remain loyal to Jesus no matter what. Now, by me giving you this information, it is obvious that I'm letting you know that I'm a late date person on Revelation. I'm a late date guy. So let me explain that a little bit. Because some of you may have heard me use that language on Sunday and you may be a little confused by, okay, what's the difference between, between being an early date person and a late date person? For centuries, Bible students have been divided on the date in which Revelation was written. Uh, some take an early date. They take the date 
that it was written prior to 70 AD. See, 70 AD is the key. A lot of times when trying to figure things out in the Bible when things are written. So many take the view that the book of Revelation was written pre-70 AD, and the events described in it are to be applied to the destruction of Jerusalem. And the, the Jewish people are the enemies of the book. Satan is using the Jews to try to destroy the church. That's the early date. And I have a lot of friends, a lot of people I love, even folks in this wonderful church that I love so much who take the early date. And if you hold the early date, guess what? I'm not condemning you to hell. I'm not saying you're a bad Bible student. I appreciate you studying. I really do. And you could be right. You could absolutely be right. But for me, and I do see the strengths of the early date. I see strengths in that view. But for where I'm at right now, from my study of it, I tend to lean towards the late date. And, and I'll explain that more as, as we go on in the class. Uh, I think the book was written towards the end of the first century, between 90 and 95 AD. Uh, I think the, the, the main enemy of God's people was Satan using Rome uh, and not the Jewish, not the Jews. But again, I'm not dogmatic on that. I don't think we can be dogmatic on that because does the book tell us exactly if it's the Jews or Rome? I mean, exactly. Does the book say that? Well, you could say there are different hints here and there, but the book doesn't explicitly say that. It doesn't tell us. So we may disagree on that, and that's okay. This, that, that's not a salvation issue. Whether you think it's early date or late date, that's not on the same playing field as baptism for remission of sins. That's not on the same playing field as Jesus being the Lord and the Son of God or something like marriage, divorce and remarriage or or the, what the Bible says about things like sexual immorality. Those are salvation issues. We're just talking about different views on how to interpret a very difficult book of the Bible. I think we can agree with that if, if, if we're seeking to be mature Christians. So you may be an early date person. I may be a late date person, but I think we can still learn a lot from this book together. In fact, let me just say this, regardless of what view you may hold or what date you hold, I think we can all agree on this. Whether you're an early date person or a late date person, we can agree on the theme of the book, can't we? We can agree that the theme of this book, whether you think it's pre-70 A.D. or after 70 A.D., is Jesus rules. Jesus rules. Jesus wins. He always wins. Whether it's the Jews persecuting his people, whether it's the Romans persecuting his people, whether it's whoever persecuting his people today, he's always going to win, and we need to stay in his army no matter what. That's the point. And maybe that's why God didn't tell us exactly who the enemy was, because he wanted Christians of all time to be able to make that application. So we go to Revelation, Revelation 1 and verse 5. Revelation 1 and verse 5, and we'll talk about this verse a little bit at the end, but it says that Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We'll say more about that in a little bit. To him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us to be a kingdom. We're a kingdom, notice. Priest of God, we're also priests. Everybody in this room is a priest. You're all priests. I'm a priest. To his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice how Jesus here is portrayed as being the king of a kingdom. The king of a group of priests. Look now at chapter 17 and verse 14. You heard Chris Emerson bring this point up. 
couple of weeks ago as he taught from Revelation, and I certainly agree with it, that I think this is probably the key verse of the book, the theme verse of the book, when it says in Revelation 17, 14, these, and whether you think that these are the Jews or the Romans or whoever, they're going to wage war against the lamb, but the point is the lamb is going to what? He's going to overcome. He's going to overcome them. Why? Because he's Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. So that's the point of the book. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. Jesus wins. Revelation is ultimately about Christ and him being victorious over anyone who opposes him in his church. Throughout Revelation, Jesus portrayed as the great conqueror over his enemies. And this would give Christians the motivation they needed to be faithful. I know, I know that right now, it's not easy being a Christian. I know we're outnumbered as far as physical numbers go. I know we're facing difficult times. I get it. I get that our culture is getting further away from the word of God. You would agree with that, right? That's the truth. But let me tell you something. As bad as we may think we have it, what we are going through right now in a country where we have a protected right to do what we're doing right now, it doesn't come close to what these Christians were going through. It doesn't come close. These Christians were being killed for their faith. They were being boiled alive, cut in half, crucified, having to watch their family members be murdered right in front of their eyes, losing their jobs, their property. They were going through things that we just don't have to deal with here in our country today. And so I want you to think about this. If you are a Christian living in the first century and you're suffering terribly, your life is at risk, you, lo you lost your job, you lost your home, you're getting kicked out of a city, maybe you have to watch your children be boiled in front of you, boiled, al boiled alive. What in the world is a book about events in 2021 going to do to encourage you? How is that going to help you stay faithful? How is that going to motivate you to stay in the army of God during a time when a world empire is in control of everything and the emperor is trying to force you to call him the Lord? How is that going to encourage you? How is that going to motivate you? It's not. These Christians needed some hope. They needed motivation to keep going during a terrible time, and that's why Revelation was written. And when you, we understand that and acknowledge that, then we can understand the final guidepost, which is the time frame of the book. Shortly take place. The events of this book were shortly going to take place. If God wanted to get it across to people that what I'm telling you is going to shortly take place, how would he say that? You think he might say it's going to shortly take place? That sounds like some humans can understand, right? He doesn't say, it's surely going to take place from my perspective. No, he says to them, it's going to shortly come to pass. He wants them to know this is going to happen soon. And that was to motivate them. And so we go to Revelation 1 and verse 1. And this is just, this may be the guidepost that's found more than anything else. And it seems like them, even though God emphasizes this guidepost more than anything else, <laughs> this is the one we miss the most. 
This is the one we totally miss out of all of them. You know, God repeats this more than any of, the, any of the other ones. Revelation 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must what? Soon take place. Verse 3. Blessed is he who hears the word, who, who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Look at chapter 22. God starts the book that way, and he ends the book with that message. 22 and verse 6. He said to me, these words are faithful and true in the Lord, the God of the spirits, the prophets, and his angel, to show his bondservant the things which must soon take place verse 7 behold i'm coming quickly verse 10 do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near not two thousand years later verse 20 he who testifies to these things says yes i'm coming quickly now, when we see that language coming, what do we think of usually? When we see the Lord saying, I'm coming, what do we think of in Western society today? People far removed from Bible times, what do we think of? We're thinking of the second coming every time. That's all we think of. We limit ourselves to second coming. That's a mistake. That's a huge mistake. Does the Bible talk about the second coming of Jesus? When we say second coming, we mean second, his personal coming. Does the Bible talk about a second personal coming of Jesus? Absolutely, it does. It absolutely does. First Thessalonians, what, four? First Thessalonians, five. Uh, First Corinthians, 15. Second Peter, three. I believe when you get to verse 36 of Matthew 24, move on throughout chapter 25. It's all over the place, right? But even though there are passages that talk about a second personal coming of Jesus, most of the comings of the Lord in the Bible are not the physical personal ones. They're just not. And, and when we maybe we fail to see that because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament, because most of the comings of Jesus in the Bible are not physical comings like when he was born into the world or came into the world through, through the virgin or when he's coming back and the world's going to be destroyed. Instead, most of the comings of Jesus in the Bible are spiritual comings, comings of judgment. Let me give you some examples. Look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 13. We go to the book of Isaiah 13, and we look at verse number 1. Isaiah here is prophesying, and he said the oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Look at verse number six. Well, for the day of the Lord, notice that language, the day of the Lord. Now, Peter uses day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3, but he's talking about the second coming. Here, Isaiah ain't talking about the second coming. He's talking about judgment coming on Babylon. Well, for the day of the Lord is what? It's near. Isn't it the same language used in Revelation? Near? It's near. It will come as destruction on the Almighty, from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and, every, limp, and every man's heart will melt. Look at verse number 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and furying, burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. 
For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like Matthew 24. That's language God uses to talk about not the end of the world, but it's apocalyptic language to talk about judgment coming on a nation. God snuffing out a nation. God doing away with the nation. Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19. Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning who? Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a what? On a cloud. Did the Lord literally come on a cloud through Egypt? Did we miss that at some point? Did he literally come on a cloud and everybody in Egypt said, there he is on the cloud? Did that happen in Egypt? No. That's talking about judgment. This is judgment language. The Lord is riding on a cloud and about to come, come, not personal coming, but coming in judgment on Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. There's so many other passages I could give you. I give you Ezekiel chapter 32. Again, Matthew 24, 19 through 31. Revelation 1 and verse 7. Revelation 1 and verse 7, same language. John knows the prophets. John is quoting from the prophets. And he says in Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Now, did Isaiah mean physical clouds in Isaiah 19? No, it was judgment language. And John's using it the same way here. He's coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Look at Matthew 24. Look at this same language Jesus uses when talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 24, look at verse number 29. Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, and there's that language the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from the sky. None of that's literal. That's apocalyptic language. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. Then here's that same language from Revelation. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Notice this. It's, you see the point? Much of the time in the Bible, when the coming of the Lord is described, it's being used to talk about God coming in judgment on a nation. God coming on Babylon, God coming on Egypt, God coming on the Jews, God coming on the Romans. God uses this language to talk about him bringing judgment on the enemies of his people. So John clearly is doing that, in my view, in Revelation. That's a clear, clear connection. And so Revelation is a book of two things. It is a book of hope for Christians Christians who were being persecuted in the first century. And it is also a message of judgment for those who were persecuting his people. Hope and judgment. Hope and judgment. These things would soon come to pass. That was to motivate these Christians to hang on, hang on. God knows what's going on. He will vindicate you soon. That was to motivate them. The language should be interpreted from the perspective of the early Christians. Those who failed to misunderstand this has led to misapplications and abuses. If Revelation was written about things to take place in the 21st century, like many folks suggest, in what ways would that encourage the Christians being persecuted severely for their faith in the, in the first century? It would not. It would not at all. And so there they go. There they go. Seven guideposts. 
seven guideposts found in chapter one where God is trying to say right away, I know my creation. I know, I know human beings. Y'all going to mess this book up. You're going to mess it up. And so I'm going to try to give you some help here. I'm going to give you some guideposts. I'm going to give you some road signs to follow so you won't mess this book up because I know most folks are going to struggle, are going to struggle with it. Now, before we close, real quick, go back to Revelation 1. Go back to Revelation 1, please. I want to close by giving you some encouragement. I want to encourage you tonight. Okay, Mitch is going to take over Sunday. Before I close my, my part here in chapter 1, I want to say some things to you from Revelation 1 about Jesus. Okay, so these Christians were to get some hope. They needed hope. They're suffering. They're going through some terrible things. Okay, so what does John, what does John say to them right away to encourage them and even encourage himself as he's in exile on Patmos? Well, he begins the book by giving them hope in Jesus, giving them motivation to stay in the right army, the right spiritual army, by letting them know about the general, the king, Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to go through a few things here. I'm going to, I probably miss some things. Forgive me if I do, but I just want to go through some things real quick, and then I'll give you the last couple of minutes. Notice some of the things that are said about Jesus in Revelation 1. Write these things down. These are now on the slide, okay? Verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn of the dead. Now, is Jesus the first person to be resurrected in the Bible? A lot of people were raised before Jesus, right? Can you think of one? Lazarus. There you go. Lazarus. So there are many other people raised before Jesus from the dead, so the firstborn can't mean that. When you look up firstborn and how it's used, particularly in the Old Testament, that language firstborn just means preeminence, the preeminent one. God called King David his firstborn. Well, David, was he the first king of Israel even? Who was the first king of Israel? So how is David his firstborn? Well, he was his preeminent king, his most exalted of all the kings of the physical kingdom of Israel. The children of Israel also called God's firstborn in the Psalms even though there were many nations in the world before their existence. So Jesus is the preeminent one, the most glorious one to rise from the dead, both now and forever. He's called the firstborn from the dead. That's a reference to his resurrection. That's important. He's called the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's important. If you're living at a time when a Roman emperor is trying to force you to bow down to him as a god, it's encouraging to know that Jesus is above him. Jesus is above the Roman emperor. Jesus is above any human institution or any man who may have authority in a human institution. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's something that applies even to this day. We need to remember that. Verse number five again. In the second part, it says that Jesus loves us. Remember that Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that sec that notice secondly in that part, it says he has released us from our sins by his blood. A, a government may can persecute us, but they can't condemn our souls to hell. They can't keep us from gaining what Jesus has given us, which is forgiveness of sins. We have been completely released from the consequences of our sins because of Jesus, because of his blood. Look at verse 13. 
I'm not going to waste your time trying to figure out what all that means in verses 12 through 14. Your guess is as good as mine. The only one I'm pretty sure on is the sword coming out of his mouth. I think we can be sure on that, but the rest of that is just trying to present Jesus in a glorious and victorious way. But I do know about verse 17. I do, I'm sorry, verse 13. Verse 13, when it says he's in the middle of the lampstands. What's the lampstands? According to verse 20. So if he's in the middle of the lampstands, what does that mean? What application do we take from that? He's in the midst of all his churches. He's in the midst of the lampstands right now. He knows what's going on in all his churches. He's in fellowship with his churches. And you're going to see that even more clearly as we go through Revelation 2. And he keeps saying, I know, I know, I know. Verse 17, I'm almost finished here. He's the first and the last. The first and the last. The idea there is he has no beginning and no end. The idea of Alpha Omega. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Why? Because he's God. He's deity. He's everlasting. Verse 18, he's the living one. Jesus died at the end of the Gospels, didn't he? But now he's alive. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. He lives even to this day as he reigns at the right hand of God. Verse 18, it says, he holds the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean to hold the keys of death and Hades? If you got the keys to your vehicle, what does that allow you to do? To control everything, right? You control everything. The keys is authority. So Jesus has authority over death. He has authority over the place where all the dead go, Hades. He has that authority because he conquered death by being raised. And so in this section, you have firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. He loves us. He's released us from our sins by his blood. He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the living one, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Instead of asking the wrong questions when we read this, this chapter, we need to ask the right question. The wrong question is, what does all of this, every part of every verse mean? That's not how you read apocalyptic language. That's the wrong question. The right question is, why is all of this information here? Why is Jesus presented in this way in the first chapter? Why is all the, are all these details given about him, particularly about him being one who has conquered death and Hades? How would you answer that? Why is this here? Yes, Lance. It's an introduction to what's going to come in the rest of the book. It's like, I don't want to say preamble, but it, it, it just it sets a precedent for who this character is that we're being introduced to. Yes, and I like how you put that because Jesus is the main character of this book. Anybody else, why is Jesus being presented in this way to us right away? Absolutely. See, if you're a Christian, and you get a hold of this, and you want in one of these seven churches, and you read this about, put, put yourself in this, in this, okay? You're a Christian in the first century. You're going through some hard times. And you get this letter from John. Let's say you're part of the church at Smyrna or the church at Philadelphia. And you read the, the, the letter right away. You have it read in the assembly. And, and you hear all these things about Jesus what would that do for you to read Jesus, read about Jesus in this way 2,000 years ago in a worship assembly? What would that do for you? 
Why would they give you confidence? Why would they give you confidence? Because you know your master is in control. You see he's alive. He knows what's going on. He's with you. It may look bad on the surface. It may look like you're losing on the surface, but really you're winning because Jesus is alive. He's glorious. He's aware, and he's going to help you. That's how they took it. That's why Jesus introduced in this way right away. And I want to close with this. That same information should encourage us today, too. If you're down and out about what you see going on in our culture, if you feel like we're just losing the battle and, and you know, we're just outnumbered and the devil's just winning, read Revelation 1. Read Revelation 1. Because the same that was true of Jesus then is true of him today. He still has the keys of death and Hades. He's still the firstborn of the dead. He still loves us. He still has released us from our sins through his blood. He's still in the middle of the lampstands. He still is the living one, the Alpha and the Omega. He still is in full control. Don't get caught up in what you see with your physical eye. Understand there's a spiritual battle taking place. There are things going on that you can't see, and Jesus is winning. He's winning now. He's going to win forever. We just need to stay with him. Okay, that, that's the point. Do you see that? So... That's Revelation 1. Mitch, probably, he can probably spend Sunday cleaning up all the stuff I messed up on. It may take him about a week to do that. But uh, that's, that's what I got to say about Revelation 1. I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees, okay? So go home tonight, read Revelation 1 again. Just read it right through. Don't focus on all the, the details and stuff. The Bible doesn't tell you what the meaning is. Just get encouragement about Jesus, okay? Just do that. And, and, and Mitch will pick up with the seven churches of Asia uh, on Sunday. Thank you for your time tonight. I really appreciate it.